Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, Certified Hospice and Palliative Care Registered Nurse and Educator for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. Thank you for joining today's Continual Learning Podcast on how to keep doing what we do, lessons from life and other disasters. This podcast welcomes Barb Schmall, nurse educator for HPNA, and a seasoned hospice nurse as our faculty. Taking a look at background, due to the nature of hospice and palliative care, nurses within our specialty often experience grief and compassion fatigue. This may lead to a decrease in our ability to deliver holistic, compassionate care over a long-term basis throughout our career. These stressors also can have an impact on our physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And some of us have had no opportunity for formal programs to participate, as well as developing ideas and techniques for self-care and stress management related to managing compassion fatigue. In our podcast today, Barb will discuss strategies to self-assess and strengthen our coping skills, as well as how to interweave these skills into our professional and personal practices. This will enable us to acknowledge the meaningful nature of the work that we do and protect ourselves and how to eliminate this stressor. Thank you and welcome, Barb. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm really pleased that you could take the time out of your busy schedule. I know there isn't a person on this call who doesn't face that challenge. And I'm especially tickled because I have to agree with Maya Angelou about um, having a mission in life to not just survive, but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, humor, and style. Um, I hope that's a reflection of your desire, too. And I'm hopeful that because you're participating, you know, this isn't one of these seminars that's about clinical issues like titration and side effects of medications and not highly technical but really, really important, I believe, to your ability to continue doing this work um, and to do whatever realm of work that you do, to just keep on doing it and doing it well. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, looking at the current state of affairs, I don't think this will be a surprise to anyone to know that within our field, we experience grief in a professional level as we deal with that constant exposure to suffering and also compassion fatigue, which is kind of a, a commonly used phrase to represent what happens to our hearts and our bodies and minds as we do this work. And sometimes it really does cause us to not be able to deliver the kind of care that we really want to and that we came into this field to do. And we know that these kinds of stressors certainly can impact our physical being as well as our emotional and spiritual well-being as well. And most of the time, you know, we have good intentions, but many, many people, many practitioners don't really have a program or an idea or really get serious about how am I taking care of myself given what I do for a living. So we're hoping that, you know, today will be really practical for you, that you'll really begin to understand the impact of what this can do to you and to your work. You probably have already felt that impact, but also to really come away with some takeaways that are some both personal strategies and also to use maybe with your team and how you work within your team to manage these, these stressors, excuse me. And also we'll do a little bit of self-assessment or a couple of tools that we'll use to kind of help guide you along the way and really make this a meaningful time together. Um, let's talk about some definitions, even though it seems simplistic. Do you remember what compassion feels like? I hope so. Um, if you don't, then maybe you are getting a little bit of fatigue and, and possibly burnout. But I love the root of the word. It means to suffer with. That's from the Latin. And um, I love this particular definition, that compassion means that we're not only aware of the suffering of another person, but it's, it's meshed and partnered with the desire to relieve that suffering, to really exhibit caring. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's why I became a nurse, really, to help relieve suffering. And we sometimes use the term sympathy and empathy. We know there's a difference, but 
when you are giving care in a compassionate way, um, you have a sense of empathy. And that's different than sympathy, which is just feeling sorrow for someone. But to have the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that kind of comes at a cost, I believe. That takes a little bit of our person in order to really exhibit compassion. Fatigue, well, I mean, really, do we really need a definition? Not really. We know what it means in every uh, physical sense of the word. But think about that term that's on the slide, weariness, resulting from effort or activity. Just that sense of over and over repetitive kind of mental effort or physical effort or that exposure to suffering. You know, if you think about weakening material or material failure, like metal fatigue in an airplane. Think of the pressure and the pull on an airplane wing, the continuous pull, et cetera, et cetera. And if that is not relieved over time, I also sometimes, if I was face-to-face -face with you, I'd use a pair of chopsticks and start pressing on each end. And what happens in the middle? It starts to splinter and it starts to break. So we don't usually think of ourselves as a chopstick, but it's a good picture of what will happen to us if we don't address these important issues in our lives. I mean, let's think a little bit about these terms. We've heard them before. I mean, one definition of compassion fatigue is just that kind of the emotional residue. I like that word. You know, these patients and families mark our practice. and. They, they leave residue, good and bad. It's not a bad thing, but they impact our lives. And sometimes that continual exposure, this isn't just normal situations, but people suffering with consequences of traumatic events. And in our case in hospice and palliative care, it's probably a series of traumatic events that we may be walking through with them. Burnout's kind of the end result, right? It's a cumulative process marked by that exhaustion and withdrawal and also used in terms of increasing workload and institutional stress, not necessarily just what you see with your patients. Now, I found some other surprising definitions, but I really think they paint a good picture, just like we we're supposed to do in our documentation, right? They paint a picture of what happens to us potentially as we do this work over time. Um, I began doing hospice work in 1992, so I've been around the block a few times. And these definitions were surprising, but I feel very accurate. And maybe you can see one of these that fits you. A chronic lack of self-care. Um, think about the stressors like family and other, uh, the rest of our personal life that sometimes causes that lack to happen. Um, vicarious traumatization, so we're living some of that trauma through other people and their circumstances. We don't really necessarily realize that it's happening, but it's compared to secondary traumatic stress disorder, right? And we know from exposure to PTSD the types of impact that that can have on a human being and kind of that leftover, that residue, and if it's not addressed and really dealt with. Tabers calls it I think that was interesting, cynicism. They added that to their definition, emotional exhaustion or self-centeredness in a previously dedicated healthcare professional. Anybody been there? Um, recognize yourself maybe in those terms that you started out certainly dedicated and you want to continue to be that way. But over time and over exposure to so many various situations and things like policies and procedures and all of the other things that impact our ability to, um, to give care, perhaps, in the way that we would like to, boy, those are important to deal with, and we don't want to live there. We don't want to live in compassion fatigue. And, of course, another definition is the social and psychological dysfunction. So, again, even more emphasis on the non-physical uh, of those repeatedly exposed to suffering, death, and the demand for compassion and understanding. If I go to an emergency room and I need to have a laceration sutured up, the nurse or the PA or whoever's doing that probably does not have to exhibit, hopefully, some caring and some compassion. 
but it's a little bit different than an ongoing relationship with a hospice or palliative care patient and demands more of us because of our work and the people we work with. So, who are me? You recognize yourself in any of those terms? Um, first of all, that's the first place to start and to understand that, wow, maybe some of the stress I've been feeling or some of the apathy I've been feeling is related to this topic. And then we want to find some resources, which I hope will provide some today in this session, and, and really start to using them, making some kind of plan or some kind of resolution, you might call it, to really think about this in, a, in these moments where you don't have to do anything else right now, but to maybe think about this. And then hopefully passing this on to other people that you work with, whether it's education or just sharing mentoring um, and also modeling it in compassionate communication as well. I think one of our biggest challenges is really finding balance because we're balancing our clinical practice no matter what setting we're in with also our personal life with all of the components of our being and when we begin to see signs of burnout where we just can't do it anymore. We've got to keep looking for that balance. I mean, burnout is kind of the, the terminal destination, so to speak, of the compassion fatigue if it's not addressed, where you get up in the morning and, oh, I've got to go to work today. Oh, I, I can hardly move. I'm tired. I slept for seven hours and I'm still tired. Or you begin to disconnect. You begin to just not have the capacity to connect with people or with patients and caregivers or hospital staff, wherever you work. Um, you know, some of the signs might be things like, as it's listed here, insomnia, but also GI distress, headaches. We know those signs usually in their initial states, but that sense of personal distress, like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to in my heart, but boy, in my head, I just don't know if I can handle that anymore. I just am going to go look for another job. Now, another difficult time, or I just made up a word to kind of capture what I call compassionitis, which also can end up causing us to burn out. But that's just that word to kind of reflect what happens when we really go overboard with maybe over-connecting. Sometimes we do that in an attempt to make our, our work meaningful, I should be more connected, etc. But we can actually go too much in that direction and, and get overly attached to our work, to our patients. You know, I know we all have patients in our practice that impact our lives personally. You'll never forget their faces or their stories, that's not a bad thing. If that becomes the focus of our life, um, or if it's at the expense of our family and friends and they're not, it's not in the proper place and we overconnect, and we do things like have some contact outside of the work setting that really may not be appropriate because we want to be able to really be as compassionate and involved as we can, not understanding that we can actually go too far in that direction. And personalization, meaning all of a sudden you start seeing yourself or your family members, right, in that situation. You can picture yourself as that caregiver or you start to relate to that patient or family in a way in which you would want it to be if it was you instead of keeping that kind of separate. But again, the results are similar in the sense that over time, if you continue with those boundary issues, you'll end up with that same sense of personal distress, you know, insomnia, physical symptoms and signs that things are just not right. And then what do we do about that? I don't think this is any surprise to us that we all have issues that certainly can contribute to burnout. And how you manage some of these certainly relate to where you work, et cetera. If you haven't had issues with work overload, 
I, I would be shocked, and maybe I'd ask you to raise your hand, but I'm guessing most of us have had that pressure in our lives, or just the time pressure and deadlines. Whether you work in a hospital setting, and you're working within a shift, or in an inpatient unit, or if you're working in the home, there's that ever-present pressure of seeing your patients, doing documentation, or deadlines for a project. If you work in leadership, um, the, the constant time pressure and sorting out prioritization. Believe it or not, if you have a supervisor that is not really good at their work or um, just you don't click or you don't understand your expectations, that can be quite a stressor. Um, you may have differing work ethics or different ideas of what productivity, and I say that in finger quotes, what that looks like. But if you don't feel like you know what's expected of you or if you don't have the training or the information that you need, that can be very, very stressful. Um, it, it just makes you feel that you're constantly perhaps inadequate and not getting fulfillment from your job. And believe it or not, boredom certainly can be a stressor. Um, if you tend to see the same type of patients or if you tend to have the same projects repeatedly, excuse me, that can actually cause you to feel a sense of stress or burnout. Now, the mystery factor that's on this slide, this is not a clinical observation as much as a personal one, having lived it. Sometimes that mystery factor is PM. No, it's not postmenopausal or premenopausal. Um, it's the poor me factor. And I, I say that kind of jokingly, but sometimes we can't get out of that sense of, boy, I don't, I don't have help, I'm, I'm kind of feeling sorry for myself, I just don't know what to do, and don't do anything about it. All of those things can make things worse rather than better. And we know that those boundary violations, whether it's in your personal life or your professional life, really can decrease that sense of compassion satisfaction, as it's sometimes referred to, that Differing values, if you think that you're doing your role for a specific reason, taking care of patients, et cetera, et cetera, but maybe the team you work with or your supervisor or the hospital system or wherever you may work has a different idea of what your job is, that can really be a stressor as well. And the same thing in your personal life. If you um, live with someone or have family members that have differing values related to personal worth and why you're together and how you communicate with each other. That's one of those sometimes hidden stressors as well. So at the risk of oversimplifying, sometimes there are individuals that seem to be a little more susceptible to thinking in one frame of mind or the other. Now, this is a generalization, I know, but um, overachievers and perfectionists kind of set ourselves up for not being able to keep our own standards, right? When I say left-brainers, they're the task-oriented list maker. I, I can have to accomplish these 10 things in the day and have a tendency, which sometimes is a good coping skill, to be able to move away from an emotion attached to a decision and just think about it very logically. There tends to be an element of rigidity, though, in that personality. That little acronym there stands for my way or the highway. And I'm sure there's nobody listening that actually thinks like that, but you've probably run into some people like that, uh, people that are controllers. And again, it's not a bad thing as long as you recognize that these might be parts of your personality or people that are easy, it's easy for them to place blame and not so easy to look at personal accountability. Um, your goal, if you recognize those characteristics in yourself, really needs to be balance, actually, because it's hard to find satisfaction in anything if you're a perfectionist or if you're an overachiever who's self-critical. Sometimes, as we know, you're your own worst enemy. Um, and so that is important to find that balance. Now, those that perhaps have the compassionitis gene, so to speak, or approach, um, have usually perhaps a little more passive, let's say fair is the French term for just kind of letting things unfold. 
And there are, again, it's not right or wrong. It just may be a function of your personality or your approach, but maybe more emotion tied to those decisions. And interestingly enough, a lot of caregivers, again, that um, compassionate inclusion in decision-making um, and blame takers might be susceptible to this. Those who are willing to or see themselves as taking blame for things that may or may not actually be your responsibility, you have the same need, and that's to find balance. Um, and we're going to, again, touch on things that might help and some common problems we see. I love the cartoon on this slide. Is your mind full or are we mindful, right, and being in the present as we go along in our practice? Um, this picture is a picture of a book that is, it really impacted my life. Dale Larson wrote this book many, many years ago, and I know he's still out speaking from time to time as far as I know recently, but he wrote a book called The Helper's Journey, uh, Working with People Facing Grief and Loss and Life-Threatening Illness. And it really made an impression upon me because I have found myself in that helper's pit, and I've also tried to help other people over the years climb out of that helper's pit. And if you could just picture a, a well, a, a well with a bucket in it, just the deep, old-fashioned kind of a well. And what, you, what Dale Larson says is, you know, people who are in this stage of life, grief or loss, or they're facing death, they're down at the bottom of that pit trying to struggle and, and just trying to cope with their situation. And they don't really want us as helpers to forget the bucket and jump in with them, which sometimes that's what people kind of misinterpret as compassion or empathy. We have to be distinct from where they are. We should be the ones that they can identify as a source of strength. We should be the ones lowering the bucket and maybe pulling them up a little bit, you know, pulling them up for that day, giving them interventions that might pull them up for weeks or months to follow. We don't know. But I've always found it to be helpful to remind ourselves that sometimes we have to not jump down in that pit. And we have to think about, you know, we want to convey compassion by caring for patients and family as if they were your own, right? I would want you to care for my mom, um, but as if she was your mom. However, we can't lose the as if because they're not our own. We want to exhibit that compassion and we want to give them the best care that we can. But in order to not become enmeshed in that situation, we have to be really aware of giving the control back to the family. They, this isn't your family member. But boy, it's difficult, isn't it? Have you ever taken care of someone who looks just like your mom or just like your son or a loved one, a friend who's died? And, and it's the time that, you know, again, Dale Larson says, think about just what you're doing right now. What are my coping skills? How do I prevent myself from getting over-involved? And to be your professional self with patients and families. That should be kind of a distinct persona compared to what you're like when you're having coffee with a friend, right? I love the quote on this slide as well from Rosalind Carter. Only four kinds of people in this world. You've either been a caregiver, you are currently, you will be one, and you or you will need one. So we all have that to face at some point and in some way in our lifetime. So I want to think a little bit about how do, we, how do we do this? How do we manage what's in here? And I want to just use a little example. Um, all of us have had situations in our life where we come across an event. Hope you can see that, that I filled that in. So an event happens that we might consider a stressor. I'm going to use an example. Your husband, wife, significant other, whoever you're living with comes home, walks in the door and says, guess what? I just accepted a job in Alaska. Now, I don't know if anybody's on the call in Alaska, so I no hidden implication. But let's say you live in Sarasota, Florida, and that's the message you got, all right? So 
let's say you hear that news, and the next thing that would probably happen is that you're going to have a physical response. Now, I'm using a lighthearted example, but think about getting news of a car accident that a loved one is in, et cetera. Your physical body, that fight or flight response, right? What happens to your heart rate? It's going to start pumping. Your blood pressure is going to go up. You're going to have that cortisol just pumping through into your system. And it's just going to initiate in and of itself. And the other thing that kicks in and that actually kind of completes the process in one sense is our perception of that event. Now, this poor woman in the slide here, she looks like this is not going to be a good situation, right? She doesn't want to move to Alaska. She's got her roots here. She thinks it's going to be too cold. She wants absolutely nothing to do with it and thinks, what am I going to do about my work? What am I going to do about the house? What am I going to do? You know, the, the mind just races and races with her perception. But if you look at this physical equation of what happens in our life and what happens in our patients' and families' lives, is there anything we can change about this equation? Well, we can't usually control the event, can we? That's probably the most uncontrollable thing. That physical fight or flight reaction, maybe within a few minutes and using different techniques, we can slow that down potentially and at least moderate it a little bit, not necessarily control it. But the only thing we do have any control over is our perception. Because this poor woman on the couch perhaps could have perceived that situation as, oh, Alaska? Hmm, that could be really interesting. It's beautiful there. I might be able to find a totally different job that I would love. Or I know somebody that lives in Fairbanks. Is that where we're going to be? This could be a great opportunity to try something different. Now, I understand that's a relatively simplistic um, event and illustration, but the point is much of our stress and our reaction to situations does have to do with something that we can control or that we can at least think through before we jump off the bridge and, and really, really lose control of your stress reaction. I'm going to show you this life change index. This is a tool that I don't want you to take out your pen and pencil or look at it now. You can um, certainly look at it later. But this is a good tool to really gauge what kind of stressors have you endured in the recent time frame. And I'm just going to scroll down. And you, you have to see in these categories, if you notice so many of them, do start with the word change. And we don't always realize that, yes, the difficulties like death or divorce and selling the home, those kind of things, yes, those are stressors, but so are some relatively what might be considered minor changes. And if you tabulate your score and you look at what is actually happening, now what they recommend is that you look at this list and total it for what's happened in the past year or if is expected in the near future, they say, you know, say six months. You just circle that and you tabulate that score. Now, can I just tell you, um, your score will add up pretty quickly, but I'm going to bring you back to the bottom here. And that they say the life change units, if you have a score 300 or above, which isn't very hard to do, that it actually has a correlation to if it's unmanaged, make you have an increased likelihood of getting ill. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily something serious. It could be hypertension, et cetera, or it could be just that your immune system um, is compromised enough that you catch every cold that comes around the office or in your family and things like that. But it's just as a good, really self-assessment to look at different things and think, oh, yeah, no wonder I'm feeling the effects in my life when I've changed where I live and I'm starting school and even though, um, gosh, my family's been getting together a lot, well, the 
the more that happens, the more stressful it actually can be, depending, of course, on the family. But even if it's great, it's still a stressor. So I'm going to go back again, and you can look at that. But it's really important to understand that um, even though it's a tool and there are many other kind of self-assessment tools available, we have to have that recognition step first to really kind of realize where am I and what are the things that I maybe I can control, maybe I can't. And let's look at some solutions to do that. First one I would say is how do you, how do you restore your perspective? How do you get your feet back on the ground? Um, that first point says avoid the staircase. I have to tell you there was a year where my life change index score was about 680, approaching 700. Let's just say it was a really bad year, year and a half. Um, now, I was on an airplane coming back from uh, my trip to Africa, which I'm going to reference later, but, and I had been just really impacted by seeing hospice patients in Africa, and I mean, it was a, a very significant trip to me. But I was talking to a man, we struck up a conversation, and he was from um, Zambia, in fact. But we were just talking, and he looked at me and he said, I see in your eyes that even though you smile from time to time, you're carrying a heavy load, which was impressive to me. We'd only been talking for a short time, but I was bearing the weight of those 680 points along with my trip. To Africa and he said you know even a blind man can go up the staircase and I thought hmm you know think about it for a second you say yeah how did they do that one step at a time he said whatever it is that you have ahead of you stretches like a staircase just look down at one step now again this isn't rocket science there are plenty of programs and things that refer to this but sometimes we forget to do that we forget that this day of stress or this particular caseload or this particular unit might be super stressful at this time. But just deal with today. It may not always be that and doesn't stretch out before you into infinity. The next sound, hope that wasn't too harsh on your ears. Think about how rarely these days you actually get time aside to be quiet. I think before long, we will have lost the art of being able to sit somewhere and just be still. No music, no videos, no phones. Learn how to work. Again, a lot of mindfulness practices relate to just being in a space of presence. But give yourself a chance to just literally think about your situation and to be still. Some some would pray, some would meditate, but give yourself that quiet time. It'll benefit the people around you, but also yourself too. Literally count your blessings. Take a piece of paper and start writing in order to climb out of that difficult time you might be feeling with the stress. What are the good things in my life? I can walk, perhaps you can. I can work, I can, you know, fill in the blanks. I can go to a store and find food. And as, as simple as that sounds, or like an oversimplification, when you start looking at what you have in your life, it does help to minimize what you may not have or what you're struggling with. Live out some cliches. You know, there's a bunch of them on this slide right here. Every cloud has a silver lining. Um, don't judge a book by its cover. Or even things like, Stop and smell the roses along the way. Those are the kind of cliches that have value and meaning, and we think, wow, you know, I really do need to slow it down, take one day at a time, those kinds of things. Find something that resonates with you, and then add to that being a lifelong learner. Just the fact you took the time today to try to find out something that might be helpful, that's a good sign, and it's a way to restore your perspective and ask those questions of yourself. And here's some other questions to ask of yourself. When you find yourself in that compassion fatigue or really stressed, roll it back to 
why do I do this work? What was the passion that brought me here? What are the things that I, I, I can do here in my work, my personal values that are fleshed out in what I can do? Is it the ability to show love and compassion to a human being? Is it the ability to um, teach staff or to manage a team in such a way that patients and families benefit from that? Because it doesn't matter in the sense of what your role is. If you're working in hospice and palliative care, I would guess you have a passion to see that patients have quality of life and that their caregivers are supported. In fact, I'm not sure, I, I know of a more passionate group, um, but think about the fact that this job, hopefully when you took it and as it continues or as it morphs into something else, does it give you the opportunity to connect and to do what you're passionate about? If, if the answer is no, do you have to stay? Is this the time to think, you know what, I'm not sure I want to do this. I don't know that I have a passion for the work that I'm doing. I mean, be honest and evaluate this. Hopefully, you have a trusted listener in your life, which is a very important coping skill or strategy to have. Maybe someone within your field, maybe someone who's just a good listener and understands confidentiality and trust, but to be able to honestly say, is, is this time for me to leave? Am I so burnt out that I really can't function anymore and might be doing harm rather than good? And think too about what do you really enjoy doing? And I'm thinking not just within your work setting, but primarily, and are you doing those things? I made the best New Year's resolution this year I've ever made before. And my New Year's resolution was, I'm going to do one fun thing a month that I either haven't done for years or I've never done before. Because it connects me with a different part of my spirit and my sense of joy and all those things. But when's the last time you've had time to think about that? What's the, a hobby you used to do and you don't do it anymore because you don't make time for it? Um, as simple as it sounds, it can really be powerful and really help to guide you and figure out a plan for what to do with managing this level of stress that we sometimes have. And refresh your practice, you know, um, use active and passive listening skills, right? When you pay attention to how you listen to people and how you learn from people, um, take a course in something. I recommend as the slide says, go to a third world country. It will expose you to how things are done in a different culture. It will perhaps cause you to come back and just look at things in a brand new way. Certainly refresh your practice and your perspective. Um, John Ortberg, who's quoted here, he's uh, actually a minister in the Midwest who wrote several books, but I was captured by his concept of guarding the human spirit, like think of that in terms of your practice. How can I do this and guard my spirit and that of the people I come in contact with from injury or from apathy or from just um, not being as current on things as we should be? Doing things like going to professional conferences, um, taking a class, an academic class, or a music class, something entirely unrelated. Incorporate role play into your teaching methodologies or in working with other staff, because again, it gets us out of a more technical mindset and engages our emotional side, doing role play and all of the bright brain activity, music, those types of things. And if you feel like you're kind of at a lull or if you feel like what's to me, kind of a danger sign that you know it all already, I would suggest that you think about finding a mentor or a, a, a colleague that's in a different discipline, perhaps, and use that person to learn from, to challenge each other, um, find a way, again, to, it, it'll help ignite that passion, I think, again, in what you may be doing in a very practical kind of way. Revisiting your priorities. Now, this, you know, 
I don't necessarily mean make yourself a cherry pie. I mean draw a circle and make a pie chart of all the things you do in your average week. You know, like your bank graph, the pie, pie chart graph. And then look at that and you figure, okay, so a third of this may be sleep, a third of it may be work, or half of it is work. What do you do with that other time? What do you actually do? Do you have anything left in your pie to live out those priorities, to live out some of those strategies? Or look in your bucket. Now, we don't have a physical bucket, but when I was a younger person, I used to think, wow, you know, uh, I'm, when I get older, I'm going to become a nurse and I'm going to, hopefully I'm going to get married, maybe I'll have children, I'm gonna, all these things are going to fill that bucket up. And boy, my life's going to be full and rich and I'm going to be loving it. What I didn't realize is, actually, for me, those things did happen, but those relationships and stressors and things, the very things I was putting into my bucket, also tended to punch holes in the bucket too and drain it back out. But think about the fact, how do you fill your bucket or do you ever? Is it a spiritual aspect of your life that's missing? Is it just emotional support? Is it fun, right? And think about when you're looking at prioritization. If you're facing an issue, is this gonna be important next week? Am I getting super stressed over something that next year won't make a difference or next decade? Or even after you're gone, that perspective that our patients and families are actually looking at in their state of life right now. And then, of course, to ask yourself, am I doing meaningful work? I think you probably would all agree, if you know that you're doing meaningful work, you can do it for a long time. And you can do it without a lot of um, strokes or support even sometimes because it's got such meaning to you. And respect your person. You know, do all the stuff, you know, we all know that we're supposed to, what, eat right, exercise, you know, all of the things that we sometimes struggle with discipline, but of course it's January, so we're all trying to keep up our resolutions if they're related to diet and exercise. No smoking, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is we all kind of know we should do it and it's time to take inventory. What do I actually do to take care of myself? No lone rangering it. In this line of work, like I said, you, you really need to have some type of support system we realize that for some people, and especially females, we tend to verbally process a lot of information. And men might need somebody to go play basketball with, but those relationships are key. And examine the relationships that you have, your friendships, and think about, are these, have you ever had a friend where you go to the movies or out to dinner and you come home and you think, wow, I'm exhausted, that was work. It wasn't something, not that you should discontinue that, but realize the nature of the friendship and what you're giving and getting and make sure that you are um, enjoying the relationship as well. Relax and laugh. Find some good funny movies that you know you'll belly laugh with and find a friend who's got a great laugh and watch it with them. Keeping short accounts with people, that just means, you know, if there's one thing we learn over time, I believe, in doing this work is how to live. We learn how to live from the dying. And I think you may have encountered people who have maybe this laundry list of everyone in their life that's done them wrong or hurt them or um, just traumas perhaps that they've never gotten over. And I don't mean not like PTSD type of issues, but just that you done me wrong kind of list, and they carry that with them like a great burden. And I, I think many, many patients have shown me the value of forgiveness, of being able to say openly and honestly, boy, that was really difficult and it hurt or I, I didn't understand it, and to ask or to receive or to give forgiveness is really, really important because we will not be carrying that. We can upload it to some other source and let it go. Um, for me, I think I have identified one of the huge challenges for us is SYL is my acronym for simplifying our life, really finding a way to simplify our life. Here are just some strategies, too, for being Our a good team member. At the top of the hour. Thank you. Um, think about being a good team member, right? Like 
engaging if you have a chance to have somebody come and supervise you, get some feedback from somebody new. Owning a genuine respect for each team member, I have to say that's one of the things I love about hospice and palliative care is that it is truly interdisciplinary and that we need to be sure the team that we're on or the team that we lead has an atmosphere where we have goodwill and trust. And don't forget to tell people genuine appreciation and recognizing the good work that they do, um, not just being critical of what they don't do enough of, et cetera. Learning how to handle conflicts within your team is really important. Being able to be flexible. Uh, I think if we don't learn that in our line of work, we really will break at some point. And yet, depending on your personality, it may be more difficult um, for some than others. Be willing to look at yourself and try to evaluate, okay, where can I do better? What are the opportunities? Where do I need to grow? Keeping gossip and secrecy to a minimum. And if you have expertise you can share, then do it. That will really help a team member. So I'll just share a couple more things before we close about just some things that I've learned. I had some opportunities in my life to do some kind of interesting things in the sense that, um, boy, lessons that I'm sure you've learned in different areas too that I can take with me and think about using as a, a coping skill. Because I was had the um, opportunity, I was watching television, this was back in 85, some of you may remember this big, huge killer earthquake in Mexico City. And I looked at them carrying nurses out of the hospital, the Juarez Hospital, because they were so exhausted and they were trying to get people out. And I was in a position at that time where I was not working full time. And I thought, I, I need to go and help. I really need to go and help out. Long story short, it, it worked out that within about four or five days, the Mexican Embassy in Chicago helped out and I met up with a team of paramedics and I got to go help out about five days after the earthquake had happened where they were still actually pulling a few lone survivors out of the hospital and other situations. There's something about seeing a disaster area that certainly restores your perspective to be in an awful situation and then to see how it brings out the best in humanity as they're helping in any way that they possibly can. Um, I saw people lined up for a mile to two miles waiting for clean water. Um, when you're thinking about your blessing, think about the fact you don't have to stand in line and wait for a water source. And that might be for weeks in something like this. I mean, I took that away from me. Always smile at children. Even in the midst of heartache, um, children smile and don't understand the ramifications. One of the team members was a great big paramedic guy who was a bodybuilder and he would reach down and carry four or six kids on each arm even as they were waiting in line to get tended at this kind of clinic that we set up in an old warehouse. It buoyed everyone's spirits, including the children. And also realizing, yeah, maybe I'm really stressed out now. My life isn't real great, but things can get worse. We sat after a long, long day at this clinic at a small hotel where we were staying, and we were out in the courtyard relaxing and talking and learning from each other when we experienced an aftershock. And it was like, oh no, the panic of, oh, this could actually get worse. But we were fine. Nothing fell off the hotel or no one was hurt. But I, I realized that sometimes when we're fearful of trying something or we feel that inadequacy, we don't have the knowledge base that we need or something unexpected ha happens, sometimes that does paralyze it, us and, and it does kind of stop us in our tracks. But even, even in those situations and when you walk in the door of your unit or you walk in the house of a patient, and they sense that you care, you can make a difference in that moment and in that time. I was able to go also with the hospice group to South Africa and Tanzania in 2002. And this is where it obviously impacted my life about simplification, that my choices really do impact people around the world. And given the fact that in the village areas, there were times when a hole in the ground served as a toilet. I won't ever take that for granted either. Um, the, the person in the orange turban here is the nurse. 
that's myself in the background, and these five children were being cared for by the woman on the left. They were all orphaned. Um, she was doing the best she could to take care of them in the township. But she, in this case, my goodness, she was the one person that cared. And what I discovered too is, you know what, when music and singing, no matter what, we couldn't speak each other's language, but I did discover this is a group of hospice volunteers, most of whom were clergy. And did you know that Amazing Grace is the same in any language and was a bond between us? And this beautiful soul who was in an AIDS orphanage, even in the midst of tragedy, I'm sure this young girl was probably, uh, had probably died within a year of this picture, but in the midst of the suffering, there's beauty. There's beauty to be had. And in 2005, I just got the lesson of what it's like to be helpless and powerless. Sometimes we can't be there. Sometimes those caregivers just can't do enough to help. Hold on to the people that we love. I had family in, in Katrina, um, several family members that we could not find them. We didn't know where they were. And I was literally unable to get out of the Chicago area to go and was told don't go. There was no gasoline, et cetera. But again, it struck me that this was an experience that made me think this is like the caregivers who are anguished and want to help and sometimes feel that powerlessness. And we feel that too sometimes as clinicians too. So I really just want to close by just taking a moment to be the representative for the people whose hands you've held, for those who've suffered and you've come alongside them, for the bath that you've given to someone, for the dignity perhaps that you cleaned them up, changed a brief, for the times when you've been on the phone with one of your staff members helping them to handle a crisis, all of the different things that we encounter in our life. I just want to say thank you on their behalf because you're one of those people, you really are, that can be that person who cares. You know, you've made a difference that you'll never really know, but other people know. And that can be that key to help you to keep on doing what you do and actually you're changing the world. So it's been my privilege to be able to speak with you. I wish I was in the same room with you, but I really hope this was an encouragement to you and I hope that some of the tools and the strategies have made you think and maybe renewed your passion to keep on doing it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Barb, for that wonderful presentation. Your your passion for this is evident in, in this knowledge that you've shared with us. You've offered us an exceptional perspective on this complicated topic, and we thank you. For our listeners, if you'd like to view this presentation and access additional resources from this episode, please visit the link in the description. For additional resources to support your nursing continual professional development, please visit advancingexpertcare.org. Thank you. Thank you.